Welcome to the Exodus Cry podcast. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and jump in. We're uh, excited about our podcast today. We have uh, an amazing uh, guest with us. He's somebody who's become sort of a mentor and a friend uh, to us uh, at Exodus Cry. And he's somebody who we've interviewed on uh, a few different occasions um, for documentaries that we're working on. Um, and for those of you who have uh, seen Liberated or plan to see Liberated, uh, Robert Jensen is our guest, and he is prominently featured in that as well. So, um, And we're going to have a full link uh, in uh, the show notes to his bio, so you can read all about him and his many accomplishments and background and all of that. So please check that out. Yeah. So, Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on with us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. Is there anything from your end, just from a bio standpoint, that you feel like would be important for people to know as we jump into this? I mean, obviously, you've written a bunch of books. You're a college professor. Is there anything else that you would point out about yourself, just for context? Well, the main thing I would point out is that while I am a college professor, I try to avoid being a college professor in the sense that uh, I try to speak in plain language about issues that matter without falling prey to the academic instinct to make everything more complicated and jargon-ridden <laughs> than it needs to be. Um, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my adult life in the journalism business, working mostly for newspapers as a reporter and editor. And uh, I, I, I don't come into these questions in some sense as an academic. I come in as a person trying to make sense of the world. Uh, and so I hope nobody's put it off by the fact that I teach college for a living. <laughs> That's awesome. It's, you know, Bob, uh, as it, his name is Robert Jensen. He goes by Bob in conversation. So I'm taking that liberty to refer to you as Bob now. Um, but uh, when we first got to know you, um, the things that you shared with us and the interviews that we had with you and things we had read in your books were so new and, and so in being new to me were so deeply profound, um, that I, I was in, you know, just kind of stunned and, and struck with awe of the, um, depth of intellectual understanding that you had about key issues relating to gender and sexuality. And as you said, how to understand our world and, my and I, I think the first time that we interviewed you was back in like 2009 or 10, and so it's been a while. Um, and you know, we interviewed you just a few years ago for Liberated, but I would say that for me, um, being on the journey that I've been on, I continue to go back to your transcripts and read them, and they become more meaningful and more deep to me. Um, and more satisfy, intellectually satisfying the further along that I go in this journey. And, um, and I've just uh, really come to appreciate your perspective and your voice, not just your intelligence and your insight, but the empathetic way in which you carry yourself. And, um, and so I, I just, I really, really am grateful that you're joining us today so that our, our audience and our, get, and our um, listeners can 
tap into this well um, and hear from you directly about a lot of your perspectives and things that you've wrestled with um, in your life. Um, Lila and I, for our part, for our part, we've been uh, um, addressing um, the whole commercial sex industry and all of its underpinnings within our culture and pornography and everything like that. So really big subject matter. Um, in reading through your transcript again recently, one of the strengths I, I think that you bring to this whole conversation is the the depth and of, of your understanding and, and kind of like the layered... Um, uh, layered understanding of this, seeing how the commercial sex industry ties in with our conceptions of gender, our conceptions of sexuality, how that plays a part of framing the commercial sex industry, what effect that has on the socialization of boys and girls and all of these things. And so I almost don't, in one sense, know where to begin, but I'd love to kind of hear you sort of Build that framework for us. How do we understand the commercial sex industry? How does that relate to our conceptions of gender and sexuality? What is what are some of these terms like sexism and feminism and and these terms that are used in this conversation yeah. actually mean? <laughs> so, well, <laughs> maybe you well, can take a, good, a stab at jumping. Yeah. In. <laughs> well, let me start by. Uh, first of all, thanking you for those kind words and then immediately lowering the expectations of people listening because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not nearly as smart as you think I am. But uh, what, as I was listening to you, I was reminded of my own experience nearly 30 years ago when I first bumped into these ideas. Uh, and there were two people who were prominent in that process. One was Andrea Dworkin, the landmark feminist writer who developed much of the critique of the pornography industry that we'll end up talking about. Uh, sadly, Andrea died far too young about 10 years ago, but it was reading Andrea's work that opened up a new world for me. Uh, another important person, less well-known, is a personal friend, Jim Copland, uh, who I met about the same time as I stumbled onto these writings and these ideas. And what Jim did for me was provide a model of how a man could work with feminist ideas and work within a feminist organization in a responsible and ethical way. And so I, th I think in some ways, whatever contribution I've made through my writing is, is really derivative from the work of Andrea and, and many women like her. And the example and friendship of, of Jim Copland and a few other men who've been very important to me. But if you were to, if I were to go back and think what, What's the core of the, the lessons I learned from those people? Uh, one of them might simply be to realize that we live in a world based on a domination-subordination dynamic. What I mean by that is if you look at any system that structures the distribution of wealth and power in the world today, whether it's patriarchy, which is a term we use for institutionalized male dominance, or white supremacy, a term to talk about the last 500 years of European control of much of the world, or capitalism, the economic system we live under, or imperialism, the way in which certain countries have dominated the politics of other countries. All of those systems are based on a domination subordination dynamic in which it's assumed that the natural state of affairs is one group of people on top and one group of people on the bottom, whether it's white over black, male over female, rich over poor, 
uh, first world over third world. And that's what I took away from the feminist writing, usually described as radical feminist writing, about pornography, prostitution, and the commercial sex industry more generally. Uh, now, obviously, uh, there are specific problems to be understood in each of those domains. Uh, but the, the logic is important to understand uh, that if, in fact, we look around, we see how much of our life is based on domination and subordination. And philosophically, you know, theologically for me, uh, domination and subordination are antithetical to and incompatible with what I would describe as any decent human society. Hmm. Now, there's lots of ways one can start investigating that. For me, it happened to be that the first issue I really thought deeply about in this context was pornography and the way in which in the society I live in, men routinely buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure. Now, that's mm. a system I had never questioned up till the age of 30. Uh, in, in that sense, you could say I was raised as a normal American male. Mm. Uh, although there's lots of my upbringing that's not so normal. But, uh, it, you know, it's really striking that I didn't even consider the nature of the system until I was 30 years old. And then once I bumped into it, and was fortunate enough to have the time and, and resources to read widely and, and work to understand it. It all evolved from that. Mm -hmm. that's, that's helpful. That's a helpful kind of background for where your journey began and beginning to, to question some of these things. And um, interestingly, for me, I think it was around the same age, um, 30, when I started to, to question some of these things. Were you gonna just say something, Lila? I, w I was actually going to ask you, Bob, because I know that you identify as a feminist, as a male feminist. And I, I was wondering for our listeners, if you could kind of tell us to you, what does that mean to you? I know in your book, you, you talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. And explain just briefly, in your opinion, what it means yeah. to be a radical feminist, because I don't think yeah. many people really understand that and understand that perspective. And it's kind of foundational to everything that you are, you're going to be talking about. Yeah. I, and I would just, I, I want to hear from you on that as well, because, uh, it seems like more and more recently I've been hearing, um, just kind of out of hand condemnations of feminists without any distinction for the fact that there are, you know, basically groups that identify as feminists but have almost polar opposite views. Yeah. So I think getting that clarity, because a lot of people hear radical feminist and they think wild-eyed, no makeup wearing, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. They get a very wrong <laughs> impression of what actually it means to be a radical feminist. Um, can you speak into that? Well, first of all, I think it's an interesting question about whether the cultural practice of wearing makeup is uh, consistent with feminism or not, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, the, so you're identifying one problem, which is that people whose conception of feminism might date back to the 1970s or 80s uh, might have a distorted notion of what this philosophy we're calling radical feminism really says. Another problem is that people whose conception of fem feminism comes from more recent decades uh, might not understand that there's been a real split in the feminist movement and some people who identify as feminists 
would radically object to uh, everything I would say and people like me would say. Uh, there are literally feminist professors on the UT campus where I teach who uh, don't agree with me about much of anything. So the, the term feminist is, is difficult in lots of ways. Some people run away from it, assuming it's dangerous. Some people embrace ideas of it that are mutually exclusive and therefore others don't understand what feminist really means. So here's what radical feminism means to me. Uh, it's a way to analyze this system that I described as institutionalized male dominance, what traditionally we've called patriarchy. Patriarchy has been around in some form for several thousand years now in human history. It's not the only way humans have ever organized themselves. Not all of human history is patriarchal. In fact, only a fairly recent portion of it, let's call it the last five or 6,000 years. Well, remember, human beings have been on the planet for 200,000 years. So patriarchy, in the long view, is a fairly recent development. And it's a social system that privileges men, puts men at the center. One feminist writer defines patriarchy as being male-dominated, male-identified, and male-centered. In other words, you develop a social system hmm. in which men, men dominate, the interests of society are identified with men, and society revolves around, is centered on men. Okay, well, that's what we mean by patriarchy. Once we recognize we live in a patriarchal society, it's, I think, simple to understand that that's inconsistent with any sustainable, decent human society. And so we reject the idea of patriarchy, and then we move forward to look at patriarchal practices. How is this system of male dominance implemented and continued? Uh, one way is through the buying and selling of women's bodies in the sex industry, pornography, prostitution, stripping. And so part of a commitment to being feminist is, I think, a commitment to rejecting those patriarchal practices. Uh, an, another way for men who identify with feminism to try and live authentically is to recognize that we're not just talking about systems, we're not just talking about institutions, we're also talking about ourselves. And that as a man raised in a patriarchal society, I was socialized to see myself in the world in certain ways, and I have to be vigilant in trying to challenge the, the way that patriarchy lives in my own body. So for me, a feminist critique is at the same time an intellectual project. That is, it's a way to try and understand the world. It's a political project. It's a way to resist things that I believe to be unjust. And it's a personal project in that it's a way to remind myself to be accountable, critically self-reflective, uh, perhaps put most bluntly, just to be less of a jerk than I was raised to be. <laughs> that's great. No, that's yeah, probably so the helpful. clearest explanation yeah. I've ever heard. So one thing I appreciated too uh, on on that topic that you wrote in your book was you explain what the word radical even really means. And it's, it's not what we think. And you, you mentioned that the, the Latin root of the word was actually it, the word root. It was getting to the yeah. root of the problem. Mm. And, and you, you highlighted that, that radical ideas are really what offer hope to dig ourselves out of this crisis. So I, I, I definitely appreciate your explanation of, 
of feminism and, and the way that you help help us understand that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the contemporary United States, especially anything that's deemed radical is assumed to be extreme, probably violent, uh, unrealistic, uh, and can then therefore be ignored. But you're absolutely right that all radical means is an attempt to understand the way systems and structures of power operate. Now, you can have a radical analysis and still approach day-to-day decisions, let's say, about how to vote or what kind of political activity to engage in, uh, in very careful ways. Uh, A radical analysis doesn't automatically lead to an immediate revolutionary political project. Uh, Sometimes, you know, revolutionary political projects simply aren't in the cards. Uh, That's just a way of saying the world is complicated. Uh, And as you try and understand the world, it doesn't automatically lead to the most obvious declaration of what virtuous action is. Uh, I think young people especially have trouble with this because once you, when you're younger, if you identify some aspect of the society you live in that is fundamentally unjust, you want to change it. And sometimes it seems the only way to change it is revolutionary action, but that's not always the best choice. Mm -hmm. Now, some people would say, you know, and, and today's kind of hot button political climate. Um, you often hear, um, people, especially, uh, like on the far right, um, who would deny that patriarchy still exists today or deny that we live in a male dominated society and deny things like the, um, wage gap and things of that nature. What would you say for somebody who like denies the premise of the thing that you're critiquing that patriarchy is actually a reality in, in, in today's world? Sure. Well, the first thing is to recognize that systems do change and that social movements, for instance, feminism or the civil rights movement, can have a meaningful effect on how those systems operate. So let's take a, a parallel project, the, the civil rights movement, the black nationalist movement, all the movements throughout the 20th century and into the 21st that have challenged white supremacy. Well, they've had an effect. Uh, obviously, we've now fully enfranchised the entire adult population. That's uh, progressive. That's an improvement in the way we operate. But it doesn't mean that white supremacy has been erased from American society. Uh, You know, we can still see that, for instance, black unemployment runs twice that of white unemployment, that things like uh, maternal health and infant mortality rates are dramatically higher for black and brown America. Well, those are evidence of the enduring reality of white supremacy, even though the system doesn't look the way it does 50 years ago. Well, the same thing can be said about patriarchy. It's true that women have made gains because of a feminist movement, but it doesn't ignore the fact that certain aspects of patriarchy remain deeply embedded. Uh, We see wage gaps. We see differences in all sorts of levels of acceptability that women can find in the dominant culture. And most importantly, we see during epidemic levels of sexual violence against women, that one aspect of a patriarchal culture is the way it controls women and and exploits women's sexuality. 
one aspect of that is sexual violence. Another is the commercial sex industry, which we've been talking about. So, you know, life is complicated. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward, a half a step to the side. We can recognize that things change and things often change for the better, but also understand that systems of power don't magically evaporate once they're identified and challenged. That's excellent. And so if, if I'm a boy, you know, growing up in this culture, um, how, would did, how would you describe, and maybe even just from your own personal experience, how would you describe the influence of patriarchy and male dominance on a young boy who's growing up in, that, in this culture and in this environment? Well, there are some differences, of course, in how boys are socialized depending on where one lives, what time one lives in. But there are also some very common experiences. And the most common that I run into, uh, independent of age, race and ethnicity, geography, is the idea that men have to be tough, that certain kinds of, for instance, emotions are female in nature, are too feminine, are unmanly. Uh, and so it's a very consistent problem that men are raised and socialized to repress their own emotional reactions to the world. Uh, I imagine there are literally billions of men on the planet right now who at some point in their life have been told to, to stop crying and toughen up to be a man. Well, the most obvious and, and I think in some ways the most damaging part of being socialized into this patriarchal form of masculinity is the idea that some aspects of being a normal human being, uh, the range of emotions that we all feel, are somehow inconsistent with being a man and therefore must be repressed. Well, we know what the consequences of that are. For one thing, we know the consequences for girls and women are pretty dramatic because when men repress the full range of human emotions, uh, things like anger and violence tend to be exacerbated. But it's also a loss for men ourselves because we don't have access to our full humanity. And that gets at the way I usually pitch feminism to men because, of course, men are socialized to believe feminism is a threat. And I argue just the opposite, that feminism is not a threat to men. It's, in fact, a gift to us. That I would argue men should embrace feminism partly on moral grounds because it's the right thing to do. In the same way that I would argue men should or white people should embrace an anti-racist philosophy. But there's also an argument from self-interest that boys and men should embrace a feminist critique of this toxic masculinity because it's in our own interest. Our own lives will be richer, deeper, more fulfilled if we can transcend that training in masculinity that we get in a patriarchal culture. Uh, and I think when presented that way, men often understand that feminism does have something to offer to us, in addition to the fact that feminism often, obviously offers much to girls and women, and that it has a compelling moral argument behind it. I really, I really appreciate uh, your explanation on that, and it, it reminds me of a story that Tony Porter told us once, and he was talking with a nine-year-old boy, and he asked the nine-year-old boy, what would it be like if you didn't have to live inside this man box that our society has created? 
And he said that the young boy replied back to him, I would be free. Yeah. And I think that's how, I think that story captures sort of the essence of what you're saying about feminism and it, it not, it's not being a threat to men. It's, it's a gift to men to free us from these caveman, narrow, superficial, shallow conceptions of masculinity that may on the surface, um, embolden or validate one's, you know, aspirations for male dominance, or at least the appearance of it, but just beneath the surface deny, um, the more complex and comprehensive nature of our humanity. And, um, and so I think yeah. Robert and, and Bob and hearing, and hearing you talk, I, I feel ins inspired and encouraged to remain on this, on this journey of, um, trying to adopt this way of being in the world that embraces that full range of our humanity. And it's, you know, been a, you know, at 40 years old, it's been, you know, a 40 year project. <laughs> it's been a 40 year project. Um, because, uh, you know, it's not easy to unlearn those aspects of the culture and or even to put our finger on the subconscious ways that we've been affected by it. But I think that's why yeah. I appreciate talking with you so much is because you have such clear language and you're able to make these things that, you know, are, are yeah. complex and oftentimes maybe seem abstract or ambiguous, really feel tangible. Um, how would you... Can, can, can I go back to Tony Porter real briefly? Yeah. Because, because that's a, a great example. So Tony Porter uh, helped create and still leads a call to men, a great feminist-inspired group working on questions about men's violence. Uh, so Tony and I couldn't be more different. Tony is African-American. I'm white. Tony is a physically large, imposing uh, kind of guy who was a jock as a kid, adept at many sports. I'm a scrawny <laughs> little kid who could never throw a ball. All right. So you would think, well, Tony and I certainly have nothing in common in the way we grew up. But these questions about how we're socialized to, to seek out a dominant position transcend those differences. Now, you know, Tony and I didn't have the same experience growing up, obviously, but we were both being socialized to understand ourselves as men in the same way. Now, you could say, well, that wasn't going to work very well for you, Jensen, because you were a scrawny little kid. True enough, but it doesn't work very well for Tony either. And that's Tony's great insight that even for men who meet the what would appear to be the specifications for a real man, this toxic man masculinity leaves those men um, in a position of kind of constant struggle and striving to prove themselves. And it has many of the same detrimental um, consequences. So while we don't want to you know, ignore the differences in, in how people live out their lives, depending on various parts of their identity, it's, I think, important to recognize that patriarchy has an overwhelming, simple, and very corrosive definition of masculinity, which is a man is in charge, a man is in control, a man represses in himself anything that might uh, de derail him from expressing that control and power. And women in that system, of course, are 
to be controlled by men. As we've been pointing out, that's not only incredibly dangerous for girls and women, it's incredibly toxic for men ourselves. Absolutely. How, you know, as I'm just continuing to, you know, kind of listen and digest uh, all the things that you're saying, um, part of my thinking goes to the larger pop culture. And, you know, when I hear people like you and Tony Porter and some others talk about these issues, it's, it feels so clear and compelling to me. And I think, how do we, how do we invoke this conversation in the larger pop culture? Like, for example, you know, one of the big pop cultural events um, that has taken place recently was the big fight um, that happened um, between Conor McGregor oh. and Floyd Mayweather. And, you know, and I kind of tracked with and monitored the press conferences leading up to the fight and then watch the fight and then listen to the post fight interviews and all of that. And, and, um, there was a lot on display, um, that we could talk about through all of that. One of the things though, that stood out to me was in the post conference, the post fight interview press conference, um, with Floyd Mayweather, he was given the opportunity to talk about, because he has a boxing gym, and he was given the opportunity to talk about himself as a role model. You have this boxing gym, you know, you're a role model, and, you know, basically, what do you, what do you have to say about how you'd like to see these kids mentored? And the two things that Floyd May, Mayweather pointed to were... Um, money. So like really informing these kids about how rich they can get. And then the other thing was his strip clubs. He wanted to give a shout out about his gentleman clubs and, you know, how big he is into buying these strip clubs and running them. And I just, I felt like, you know, obviously I felt like there was a lot missing from that conversation about what it means to be a, a good male role model. Um, but what was, even I think more maybe surprising or disturbing to me was just the the acceptance of that by seemingly everyone just hook, line and sinker. Like it seems like everyone's just kind of almost internally accepted um, Conor McGregor's brand of masculinity that's totally built on beating other people up, being dominant, having lots of money shoving it in your face um and 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 everybody's like you know the, that i talk to that i can tell like adores that like that's seen as man like this guy is a true man and yeah. for me you know when i hear the the feminist critique of of the radical feminist critique of patriarchy male dominance it seems to point out a lot of the flaws in that version of masculinity but then if you even go to contexts where there are more, I would say, like thinking men, like um, one person that I've often referenced on this podcast is Joe Rogan and his podcast because he has such a big reach among men in the pop culture and really has expanded his podcast to include all kinds of different perspectives. But even within that context, there's still this acceptance of this, you know, what I would call a toxic version of masculinity, an acceptance of it, 
a revering of it and a holding up of the the figures, uh, the male icons within the culture who embody that. People like Dan Bilzerian, people like Conor McGregor, Floyd Mayweather. What is it about these figures that we find so fascinating? Why aren't we able to see past what appears so obviously to be such shallow notions of masculinity? And how do we invoke this conversation that you and I are having in the larger culture? Well, here I think it's interesting to, to go back to the what we call the second wave of feminism, out of which the radical feminism I identify with emerged. This is from the late 1960s and 70s. And for those who remember that period, the, the feminist movement presented a very dramatic challenge to patriarchy, to this system of male dominance. And it had a kind of revolutionary feel to it. It was also part, as everyone understands, of a a series of challenges to power in the 1960s and into the 70s, the, the challenges to white supremacy, the challenges to U.S. domination around the world. So, you know, kind of radical thinking was in the air back then. Uh, and I think people uh, very committed to patriarchy understood that. And there was a backlash. In fact, there's a very good book called Backlash written about this period. Uh, so what we're seeing is in part, I think, uh, simply attributable to the backlash, that feminism presented such a compelling challenge that the system responded. Now, the system responded in a very complex way. It couldn't, you know, uh, push women back into a purely private space. It couldn't deny women the vote. It couldn't stop women from going to college all of a sudden. What it did was, uh, I think, push the exploitation of women into a more normalized place. So you mentioned strip clubs. Uh, you know, it's interesting that as women have made advances in the last 30 or 40 years in a country like the United States, the sex industry, the sexual exploitation industries, as I call them, has expanded dramatically. Uh, a normalizing of prostitution, a huge, of course, explosion in pornography. And the the kind of acceptance of stripping, which we see in this term gentleman's club. Uh, a strip club is no longer a place where men go to buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure. It's a gentleman's club. Okay. Well, that's all part of the backlash. The other aspect you pointed out was the kind of glorification of wealth, independent of how that wealth was created. Uh, here, I think we also have to talk about capitalism and the, the trajectory of the capitalist system. Uh, People will disagree often quite vociferously about this, but I think we're seeing the, in a sense, the end of capitalism, the decline of a system. But whatever one thinks about capitalism, there's been a kind of uh, glorification of wealth for the sake of wealth, uh, most notably in perhaps the last presidential election. Uh, and I don't think that's a healthy dynamic for the culture as well. You're also pointing to the rise of a spectacle culture. So let's take boxing. I, I have a hard time imagining a, a society I would want to live in where there was boxing. Uh, but certainly uh, human beings love to use our bodies for, for play and for fun. So wrestling, football, basketball, any of these things are part of human societies. And, and I believe that that kind of sport has a real important role in human societies. But those sports have become more and more spectacle. And 
the spectacle often is unconcerned with the effect on real people. So we know, for instance, that boxers are physically uh, often um, battered and, and in their short careers are going to sustain lifelong uh, debilitating injuries. We now know that about the, the, the National Football League as well. Yet do we see people rethinking their commitment to the spectacle of professional football? No. Uh, you know, it's, I, I don't consider myself you know, a great <laughs> uh, moral thinker. Uh, but it's hard to look at that and not see it in moral terms, that we're losing some of what it means to be human, which is to be rooted in empathy and care and compassion for others. Mm. When we treat people like, you know, machines that we enjoy watching in a spectacle like the National Football League, it's kind of hard not to wonder what's happened to us as a people. Mm -hmm. Mm. That reminds me of something that you mentioned in your book. Um, you talk about pornography and the way that it's a mirror that's held up to our culture and that we believe about ourselves that we are a culture that frowns upon inequality and subordination and um, injustice and all, you know, all of these things that we believe, we think we believe about ourselves, but in reality, um, just looking at the pornography industry and the way that the mass consumption of pornography, uh, looking at that as a mirror to our culture, we realize that that's actually not true uh, because it's so widely accepted by us and there's very little critique or thinking about it and what's going on. Um, or if there is, there's just an outright denial and mm -hmm. acceptance of it. Could you talk a little bit about that and just the way that pornography is that is that mirror to our culture just like um just like you know these spe spectacle sports and things like that what you're mentioning um as far as a lack of empathy and what that really says about us as and, a culture and i would and i would just add to that too along the lines of what lila's saying robert how one of um the things that you develop conceptually is this idea of sexual subordination, the sexual subordination of women as being a key and central characteristic of a patriarchal, male-dominating mentality system um, composition and how that is embodied and expressed profoundly through pornography. And um, I think that that entire concept is totally new to a lot of people. I know I know that it was you know very new to me until I heard you talk about mm -hmm. it. Can you also, as as you get into this, speak about some of the examples in pornography that would um, sort of explain what you mean by that? Sure. First of all, uh, I always want to point out that. You know, these aren't really ideas that I've developed. They're ideas that I learned from women in feminism and have tried to explain and articulate uh, through a, the lens of a male experience. But, uh, you know, back to uh, Lila's point about pornography being a mirror, I think that's a large part of the reason why people are so afraid to talk about it, uh, why parents are afraid to talk about it to their children, why spouses are afraid to talk about it with each other. Uh, it, pornography 
is uh, a, a place where we see the worst of ourselves, I think. Uh, and that's difficult for people to face. Uh, as Lila pointed out, we want to think of ourselves as, you know, decent, empathetic, compassionate people, yet the sexual fantasies, which are largely constructed around the male sexual fantasy and pornography, are anything but that. So it, without getting too specific, uh, you know, a lot of the sexual acts in mainstream pornography are designed to intensify men's domination of women. In the roughly 25 to 30 years I've been studying the porn industry, one of the most obvious and dramatic trends you can see is that pornography is more overtly cruel and degrading to women today than it's ever been before. And yet we think of ourselves as a society that's more progressive and more enlightened. Uh, that cruelty and degradation, I, I, I'm not suggesting is subtle. I'm talking about very blunt kinds of images. Uh, entire pornographic films based on uh, three or four men sexually humiliating one younger woman, for instance. Uh, sexual practices, including all sorts of forms of multiple penetrations and things that I don't think we want to get into here, that are now routine in pornography that have been developed over the last three to four decades. And these are sexual practices that are not common in the non-pornographic world. They were constructed specifically to increase the profits of the, the porn makers. Uh, because these images play to an idea of male dominance. Well, that's what I've often called the paradox of pornography. In the same period that we believe ourselves to be increasingly more enlightened, we've seen in the growth of a pornography industry that has deepened this domination and subordination dynamic. Well, why is that? Well, uh, you know, the people who defend pornography say, well, it's all fantasy anyway. It doesn't say anything about the world. But I think there are two things we can challenge about the claim that pornography is just fantasy. One is we know that media often express fantasy, sure, but they have an effect on how we understand the world and how we behave in the world. After all, that's why advertisers spend billions of year, uh, dollars a year creating fantasies that we call commercial advertising. <laughs> well, uh, those are fantasies in some sense, but they affect how we think about the world and our buying patterns. Well, that's true of pornography and every other media genre as well. But even if pornography had no effect on people, let's say that in some world we don't live in, you could make graphic sexually explicit images that involve overtly patriarchal male dominant forms of sex, but that had no influence on how people think or act in the world. There's still another question, which is why those fantasies? Why is that the place the pornography industry went as it tried to increase its market share and profit? Well, it says something about the nature of the society we live in. And again, it's not surprising that people have a hard time coming to terms with this especially when we're not talking about it in the abstract. We're not talking about, you know, something that happens in, in some historical period or something that happens half a world away. We're talking about what's happening in our own homes, in our own bedrooms. Uh, take an average heterosexual couple, uh, a, a man and a woman who are married. Uh, maybe the man is using pornography, maybe using this extremely 
cruel and degrading pornography. Well, he's going to want to avoid talking about that because to talk about it is to raise some very difficult issues. His wife may also be unwilling to talk about it because it requires her to face the reality of the relationship. So there's a lot of, I think, reasons people are afraid to talk about this. But of course, we know from our own experience that ignoring problems rarely solves them. That's excellent. Wow, so much to pull apart there, <laughs> I feel like. Um, so just to take this back a little bit, I kind of, I want to maybe kind of dig a little deeper into some of what you're saying here through a bit of kind of maybe your own experience um, as sort of a reference point. But I'm just imagining back to you know, a time when, uh, when Playboy magazine was the way that a young boy might have mm-hmm. kind of his first exposure to something of a pornographic nature or with any form of sexuality. Um, I know that that was, you know, the case for me as a boy, uh, growing up a neighbor across the street had it. And, uh, one of my friend, you know, my friend, you know, pulled it out of his dad's bathroom or something like that one day. And, and, but even to this day, I can still remember the experience of that and just how powerful that was as, as a young boy. I think I was maybe seven years old at the time, eight years old, something like that. Um, so I think, you know, thinking back to that just as, as a context and the, and the potent impact that that had on the development of my own um, sexual sexuality and worldview and all of those things, um, can you talk about the, the, the role of pornography and the socialization of boys growing up in today's culture and what might be unique um, to today's culture that, you know, you or I may not have experienced growing up because the internet wasn't around and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'm 59 years old and I, like you, can remember my first exposure to pornography. Uh, By comparison, it was actually material that we wouldn't consider pornography today. Uh, I vaguely remember when I was in grade school that one of the neighbor boys had what I what I would call a biker magazine uh, with pictures of women on motorcycles without uh, a top on. Well, that's so run of the mill today. Nobody would call that pornography, but that's what we thought of as pornography back then. And as you point out, it has a powerful impact on a developing child. Uh, I'm not an expert in child development, but I'm pretty sure that six-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds are not fully mature physically or psychologically as sexual beings. And therefore, to encounter those kinds of images is going to distort that development. Well, as you point out now, it's not that the, the practice has changed so much, but the delivery system has. So instead of, as it was when I was a child, your exposure to pornography was going to be through largely through print images, typically magazines like Playboy, as you point out, typically that were, you know, hidden away in your father's drawer or that you found somewhere and stashed in the backyard. Now it's almost instant and 24-hour access 
And it's also to images that are much more explicit and often in this context of cruelty and degradation to women. So you now have 12-year-old boys whose first exposure to the, to the, you could say, the mechanics of sex is watching a hardcore, graphic, sexually explicit video on the internet in which women are routinely treated as sexual objects. And in, in that context, the sex is humiliating to the woman. Well, in some sense, as my friend Gail Dine says, we're running an incredible social experiment on young people. We are exposing children to those kinds of images uh, with no controls for the most part, and we have no idea what it's going to do. Well, we're starting to get an idea because young men are starting to report their own experiences. And there's now several websites and organizations starting uh, by men who are not coming out of a feminist critique necessarily, but they're recognizing that their own exposure to this pornography from such an early age has left them incapable of having a, a mature sexual relationship. I've talked to many young men who tell me that, for instance, they cannot achieve an erection without thinking of pornography. I've had men tell me they cannot, in a sexual experience with a, a woman, uh, reach an orgasm without thinking of pornography. Uh, and increasingly, we're hearing from men who simply, without pornography, can't perform sexually at all. Well, that's a pretty dramatic uh, early result of this social experiment we're running. And one would think it would give us pause and make us uh, hesitant. To, we, sh we should be stepping back. But in fact, the culture isn't. Um, it's unfortunate, but I think what we're going to see is a whole generation of young men who uh, are going to bear the costs of this. And of course, in addition to the young men, it's young women, because the, the problems that men have are not exclusive to them. They inevitably affect the relationships men have. And in heterosexual relationships, I think we're going to see even more problems that are directly related to pornography. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you're um, you're talking about these boys accessing and um, being exposed to pornography at such young ages, um, one of the things that I, I think you highlight r really powerfully in your book is uh, the reality of what pornography is today and have, how have we said what his book is oh, we let me just, it. yeah so it's, <laughs> <laughs> let's just give yeah. a plug so people can actually yeah, it's uh it's called getting off pornography and the end of masculinity um i repeat that one more time getting off pornography and the end of masculinity and i'll put uh put that in the show notes and the podcast description as well so people can reference that um but what you highlight in in your book so like i said powerfully is the fact that Pornography today is definitely not just the still photos and Playboy that of, of yesteryear. It's extremely degrading. It's extremely violent, and um, and it just makes me wonder, as this is being mass consumed by men and women in our culture, have have we become like a sociopathic culture that just is incapable of feeling um, empathy? for what's happening in these scenarios 
what what exactly is going on? I know that you really feel that empathy is an important um, an important part of addressing this this issue and and solving this problem. And we've talked about empathy quite a bit on this podcast, but just thinking about the violence and degradation and the way that people are consuming this so much, is it like right, what has happened? Right, like like uh like there's like some people would say, you know, if you, if you begin to critique pornography, they would say, you know, you're anti-sex or or you're a prude or you, you must just be a, you know, a bigoted Christian or, you know, they, they, they label you in all kinds of ways to dismiss any critique of pornography. And, you know, and there's and I'm sure there are situations where that might be an appropriate dismissal. But but the but the common scripts of pornography today that involve things like double penetration and I, I don't want to get too graphic on this podcast but but there are there are scripts like gagging normal scripts that that are extreme violence like that are, let's that, just say well that are it's they're violent but it's it's like there's no degradation. there's no explanation for that like you can't you can't like come back and tell me that that's for her pleasure like or that this is about um, establishing some type of um, egalitarian sexual, ele- elevating some egalitarian sexual experience. Like, there's no other way to interpret that. Yeah, in the porn industry, they call it destroying, basically. Like, I destroyed her. Right, like, so you'll have websites destroying yeah. young teens. Yeah. Um, you'll have websites degrading the babysitter, <laughs> f- you know, yeah. s- number 15 in the series, mm-hmm. you know, and things of that nature. And so, back to, to Lila's question of this ethic of empathy that seems to disrupt exploitation, it it seems almost absent when it comes to, like, how is it possible that so many people are consuming this as part of a normal script in in porn if if they're not just becoming completely sociopathic? Yeah, I think that's an important question. First of all, empathy, uh, to me, is a requirement for any decent society and any progressive politics. You know, empathy alone doesn't guarantee good politics, but without empathy, it's hard to imagine it. And in the book you mentioned, Getting Off, uh, I talk a lot about how empathy is the enemy of the porn industry, because if, if men watch pornography and can make a human connection to the woman being degraded, they're going to see that this is not sexually arousing, this is degrading. And so, the pornography industry has to do one of two things. It either has to plug into the idea that women don't matter, and there's no reason to empathize with women because they're a lesser part of the species, or to demonstrate that women like it. And that's why it's so important in pornography to women ex- for women to always express that they enjoy and get sexual pleasure from being degraded, which gives the men who are watching a kind of moral out. They can tell themselves, well, you know, chicks dig this. Uh, uh, But of course, that's all a construction to try and make sure that men never do what we should be doing, which is acting as moral agents and thinking about our role in the world. And and I write quite a bit about that in Getting Off. Uh, One note, by the way, about Getting Off is kind of good news and bad news. The bad news is the publisher of Getting Off went out of business. So the book is out of print. Uh, The good news is that I was able to put a PDF of it up online at my website. So it's now available for free. Uh, I also wrote 
a, a more recent book called The End of Patriarchy, uh, Radical Feminism for Men, that came out in January of 2017, and that's mm -hmm. available as well, which develops some of these ideas in a, in a larger framework. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's go back to your question. Are we a sociopath, becoming a sociopathic country? Well, I think uh, Robert, in just, some just ways- Robert, just real quick. Hey, Bob, just real quick. What is your website? Yeah. Uh, the website is robertwjensen.org, but if you just put my name, Robert Jensen, into Google, Okay. And the first page that comes up. Robert yeah. org, and it's J-E-N-S-E-N, -E -E correct? That's correct. That's okay. the important thing. To, okay. To <laughs> All right. Cool. Yeah. I want I want to make yeah. sure people can get a hold of these resources because when we started looking into this as we were researching for our documentaries, I mean, there's there's just not a lot out there. I thought we were very lucky, very fortunate and blessed to find you. And that book, that newer book you just mentioned sounds incredible because yeah. for somebody like myself, who's, who's really trying to understand these things and digest these things, like I said, there's not much out there. I mean, what a perfect resource, radical, understanding radical feminism for men. What's the name of the whole thing again? Say that one more time. The new book is called The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. And, and as long as we're talking about books, That's amazing. you know, it's <laughs> important to mention uh, my my longtime co-author and friend Gail Dines' book, Pornland, mm -hmm. How Pornography Has Hijacked, Hijacked Our Sexuality. In a lot of ways, that's the, the foundational text for the study of the contemporary porn industry. And Gail is doing great work with a group called Culture Reframed, and there's uh, resources online, uh, culturereframed.org. One of the really exciting things that Gail's working on in Culture Reframed is a parents program. So we started talking about how uh, pornography is an issue for men, young men. Uh, but of course, uh, if we only start thinking about this and trying to intervene, you know, with college students, we're, we're going to be way too late because young men are being exposed to this kind of, uh, or excuse me, boys, young boys are being exposed to this kind of material. So Culture Reframed is working on a program that will help parents deal with the pornographic realities that their, their children, and of course, not only boys, but increasingly girls as well are exposed to this. So it's a very important that's that's great. Uh, we'll have to talk more about that with Gail. We're going to have her on the podcast here Absolutely. soon, too. Absolutely. So that's great. Thanks for, for letting us know about that. So let's go back, because i I kind of been dodging this question. Is the United States a, a, socio, a sociopathic culture? Uh, my conclusion would be that that maybe that's not exactly the perfect way to describe the culture but that there are elements of U.S. culture that are sociopathic and more acceptable than ever before. Uh, we talked about the kind of brutality of spectacle sports. Uh, you know, people have been playing and watching sports for a long time, but there's a kind of level of uh, glorification of and exploitation of, of that violence that is very disturbing. We're talking about the sexual exploitation industries and the way that that's become more normalized. It, it's not to say that everybody engages in this sort of pleasure through violence or pleasure through degradation, but the fact that the culture 
accepts this without much critique, I think is rather disturbing. Uh, and I think we would all be better off if we spent some time pondering that instead of merely embracing it. Uh, and if we take that seriously, then there's, there are lots of implications, not only in the realm of gender and sexuality, but also just the way the culture is structured more generally, uh, especially around questions of wealth inequality and the glorification of, of extreme wealth. Uh, you know, billionaires being treated as heroes while, you know, a significant portion of the population lacks the, the basic resources for a minimally decent life. And when you expand that to the world stage, uh, an even more dramatic reality that, you know, billions of people on this planet live with deprivation that's morally unacceptable. Uh, so all of these are problems human beings have dealt with for a long time, obviously. But as we think of ourselves as increasingly more civilized, enlightened, and progressive, there's something disturbing about the way we accept these inequalities and this domination subordination dynamic in so many aspects of life without a lot of critique. Mm -hmm. That's really, really helpful. I, I especially appreciate how you explained that one of the ways that consumers of this extremely degrading and violent pornography kind of get themselves off the hook and the way that the, the producers of porn do this intentionally to allow them to do that is for the women in porn to be forced to act like they enjoy it. Um, I think that kind of speaks to this issue of when we try to address porn, we try to address violence in the sex industry and prostitution. And um, one of the things that people do often is they try to have like a dodge. They try to dismiss it in one way or another. Um, and one of the ways is what you mentioned is just saying, well, that they like it. And another one that you did a, again, address in your book is, well, she chose it. She wanted to be there. I, you know, she consented to doing this. Therefore we don't have to have empathy for her and what she's going through. How do you address that? Um, how do you address that dodge, if you will? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important to realize, you know, there's a lot of variation in the human species, and it's not my place to tell women whether they should enjoy, not enjoy uh, work or not work in the sex industry. Uh, I think instead of, you know, me dictating how people should choose in the world, uh, it's important to recognize the conditions under which people choose. Uh, and and so I use the example because I'm a college teacher of the fact that my students often choose to take multiple choice tests. I teach several big lecture classes and I, I give multiple choice tests. And I always ask students, do you think multiple choice tests are the best way to evaluate your learning? And everybody laughs because everybody hates multiple choice tests. And I say, okay, are, are you gonna take the test I'm gonna give you in our next class meeting? And they all say, yes. And I said, well, you just told me that you don't think uh, multiple choice tests are a good evaluation method. So why are you gonna take the, the test? And everybody laughs because the answer is obvious that they are choosing to take that test under extremely limited 
conditions that if they don't take the test, they don't pass the class, they don't graduate, et cetera, et cetera. So the point I'm making is that we all choose, but we choose under different conditions of constraint and opportunity. The students who are choosing to take my multiple choice test could choose otherwise, but there are certain constraints they'll experience as a result of that. Uh, so whenever we look at the defense that people are choosing to do something, we can say, sure, everybody chooses. You know, if I'm a prisoner in a, in a jail and the guard comes by and says, get out of your cell, it's time for lunch. When I walk out of the cell in some sense, that's a choice, but it's a choice under extremely limited opportunities, considerable constraint. So that's a long introduction to the, the simple question. When women choose to engage in the sexual exploitation industries, what are the constraints and opportunities they're working under? And there's some data on this, some research uh, that I think is fairly clear that women in the sexual exploitation industries typically have limited economic opportunities, limited education. Uh, they have disproportionately high rates of childhood sexual assault in their background, which has psychological consequences. They have high levels of drug and alcohol addiction, addiction, both going into the sex industries and also while they're there. Well, when you add all that up, what you see is that people are choosing, but choosing with some very limited opportunities and considerable constraint. And then the question I always ask is, in addition to the way women choose, let's not forget men are choosing as well. That when a man buys a pornographic film or a man uses a woman being prostituted on the street, that man is making a choice as, as well. And the man can easily choose to do otherwise. So men are often you know, always pointing to women's choices to justify their use of women in the sexual exploitation industries. And there's a lot to say about that, as we just discussed. But my first question is to the man, why are you choosing to engage in this? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah. Now, I want to just go back for a moment to, and this, you know, I feel like this is this is all, all part of this kind of larger conversation we're having, but there was there's a specific term that stood out to me in um, that you've used the sexual subordination of women as a feature of a patriarchal male dominating way of being in the world, and then seeing how that manifests through the usage of women in different capacities, whether it be pornography, the commercial sex industry, um, other ways that men relate to women and in, in uh, real relational relationship scenarios. Um, one of those areas that I want to talk with you about is this issue of rape. And, um, and I would love to get your definition and understanding of what rape is, because as much as that seems like a clear concept, the idea of, you know, one person forcing themselves on another, um, it seems that uh, what part of what we're seeing in our culture today is a lack of clarity and understanding of what that actually means. And I think part of that stemming from this idea 
that has become normalized within the male psyche um, that sees women and sees sex as an opportunity for sexual um, subjugation or uh, the term that I referred to er earlier that you, that you use a lot. Um, could you um, help us understand yeah. that, especially, you know, with regards to this law that was passed in New York, I think it's where once a sexual encounter begins, then, you know, the man is sort of off the hook from having to achieve any, like, once it begins, he can no longer, she, the, the woman can no longer at any point, no matter what happens, accuse him of rape. Um, can you maybe speak into the gray area that is our understanding of rape in today's culture and help provide a framework for understanding that? Sure. Well, you know, in a legal sense, rape is simply sex without consent. And so rape is, uh, you know, the the taking in that sense, typically of a woman, although obviously men can and do rape other men. And on very rare, rare occasions, uh, a woman may sexually assault a man, although the the incidence of that is so small as to be essentially irrelevant. That doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of sexual abuse and assault committed by women against children. It, the world is complicated. But if we're going to talk about rape as most commonly uh, men's sexual intrusion into women's lives, uh, there's a legal definition, which is not always easy to work out because the world is complicated. And then, as you say, there's even a, a larger kind of gray area uh, that gets back to this question of, of what constitutes consent. So here's an example I use in the, the most recent book, The End of Patriarchy. Uh, and it's an experience that many women have testified to. Uh, if you're a, a woman, let's say, in a college dating scene, and you, you go on a date with a man and you're alone with him, and the man expresses interest in sex, and he's considerably bigger than you, and you're not sure of his intentions, and you don't want to participate in sexual intercourse, but to forestall the possibility of violence, you engage in some sort of limited sexual activity to satisfy the, the guy you're, you're out on this date with. All right, so there's been no force, there's been no violence imposed, but to forestall the possibility of that violence, the woman engages in activity she did not want to. Okay, is that rape? Well, legally, the answer is quite clearly no. It doesn't constitute sexual assault under the law. But is it, but is it a state of affairs we're happy about? Uh, in other words, in a culture where women are so routinely afraid of the consequences of expressing their in real desires in, in sexual settings, that they will sometimes engage in activity just to protect themselves uh, doesn't strike me as, you know, a healthy culture. So, you know, we can discuss rape in a lot of different ways. We can look at the legal questions and try to work out laws and policies that protect women better than the existing system does. But that can't be the end of the conversation about rape because we have to talk about how the idea that men take women's sexuality is prevalent not only in acts we call rape, but throughout interaction between men and women in this culture. Uh, and the point is that once you define from a masculine point of view, 
sex as the taking of women, then you're going to have a whole lot of situations where whether or not the, the taking meets the legal definition of rape, it's going to be under conditions that don't lead to healthy intimacy for anyone. Uh, and that's where I think the feminist analysis is so important. It helps us recognize rape isn't merely a question of criminal law. It's a question of culture. Absolutely. As you're, as you're exp kind of explaining this uh, last point, I, I think, you know, talking about the, the ways in which um, sexuality is, is used in, in a destructive context and as an extension of some of the deeper ways that we've been socialized to think about what it means to be a man in this world and, you know, and often in cases what it, it means to be a woman, um, both men and women can use sex, obviously, in, in, uh, in ways that are detrimental and harmful to another person. Um, but, you know, as you pointed out more prominently, it, it seems to be uh, something that it's that is more consistently uh, expressed through through men towards women. Um, but Bob, if if you could describe like what you view as a I don't know if this is the right term, but a healthy sexual ethic, um, what would that look like? How do we promote, um, how do we begin to promote uh, solutions or other ways of being to people who are so deeply immersed in this pornographic culture? Um, and, you know, obviously we've, we've talked about pornography, but even beyond that, Game of Thrones has become a m huge hugely popular show which you know contains scenes that I, I don't know how could be they could be described as any other way than pornography and these are mainstream shows that you don't even have to go to HBO to watch anymore right like you can see these shows on some of the streaming video on demand platforms like new Hulu or Netflix and and there's numerous shows that have now embraced this sort of pornographic expression of sexuality as a part of mainstream television shows. So even on that level, pornography and the mainstream pop culture are becoming so overlapped, it's hard to tell them apart from each other. So for people who are just literally so immersed into these toxic, um, objectifying, uh, harmful ways of thinking about sex and, and presentations of sex or like in Game of Thrones where sex is used as, you know, supposedly started the storyline, but the storyline is, oh, now this girl gets raped, you know, and it's like, so we're going to show that in the most graphic terms. And, you know, it's just, I, I, I almost feel like we just need a breath of fresh air. Like, okay, <laughs> what, what is this thing that we call sex? How can we relate to each other in a healthy way, what can we agree upon about this super powerful component of our humanity? Yeah, I'm not sure we'll ever agree on it because there is a lot of individual variation in the human species, but I think the question is important. And I think in a liberal society, and I'm using liberal in 
the big sense. The United States is a liberal society in this sense, not in the you know Republican versus Democrat context. Uh, in a liberal society, people are often very nervous about talking about the question that I would say is best defined as what is sex for? Well, we know, of course, sex is tied to reproduction, but we also know sex is in human experience much more than reproduction. Uh, and I think I would start by saying that reasonable people can disagree, that not everybody has to agree on what sex is for. And in fact, even in our own lives, sex can fill different roles at different points in our life. I think when we're young, for instance, sex is about exploration. It's a, 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 one of the ways we learn about ourselves, our own bodies, what it means to be human in relationship to others. Often for people as they age and engage in partnerships, especially lifelong partnerships, sex can be a, a way of bonding, a way of reestablishing a connection over and over again in a busy world. So sex can do lots of different things. Uh, but the one thing I would say is sex is always more than simply the acquisition of pleasure. And in a commodified society like the United States, sex is often reduced to nothing more than pleasure acquisition. So where I would start is to say sex can be many things, but it always is more than that. Uh, one of the ways I've, as I've gotten older, especially come to think about sex is that it's best understood as a form of communication, that it's mm -hmm. a way we communicate with each other. It opens up avenues of connecting with others that may be more difficult in simply talking, uh, that it tells us things about ourselves that we might not discover in other ways, and that for that communication to happen, sex has to be primarily about vulnerability, that truly deep, rich, meaningful sexual experiences come when we make ourselves vulnerable to each other. Uh, and that often happens in long-term partnerships, but not exclusive to it. It can happen in all sorts of contexts. And that's very hard to achieve in patriarchy, when men are conditioned to think of sex as something they take from women, when sex is connected to that notion of male domination. It's very hard for men to make themselves vulnerable in such a, in such a situation. So I think the question, what is sex for, is very important. I don't think it has to have one answer, but I think we have to get over our fear of talking about it. And as That's you good. pointed out earlier, when people do raise this question, they're sometimes accused of being prudes or moralistic. And I see nothing prudish or moralistic about this. But it is a profoundly moral question in the sense that it's about how we understand ourselves as human beings, what kind of obligations we owe to each other, what it means to be human. And so I don't see how a discussion about sex, no matter what perspective we take, cannot be in some sense deeply moral. And I think in a liberal culture, there's a fear of making moral judgments, but in some sense, this is always a moral issue always a question of how we understand ourselves as being human in connection to others. And I think we should explore it without fear. Absolutely. I think, you know, thinking of um, previous generations and it's, I don't know that it's entirely possible for me to hypothetically insert myself into previous generations or to fully imagine what it would have 
been like. But I think that the representation, it seems that the historically the representation of sex in culture has been um, relatively, uh, I don't know if tame is the right word, or um, limited, um, maybe more uh, traditionally um, acceptable, whatever term that we can think of. Um, but I think, you know, in, in today's world, so, so thinking back on, on like previous generations and those contexts where sex was represented in, um, in these more mild ways, mild, acceptable and traditional ways, um, maybe there was a, a, a reason for people to disengage for, or, or, or a reason for people's unwillingness to engage in a larger conversation about sex like oh that's private and oh you don't talk about that and so we kind of leave those things to the privacy of our personal relationships but i think you know what's different about today is the mass representation of sex in ways that are so utterly um destructive that i think demand a conversation about this, yeah. which is why I posed that question to you. And I really appreciate your answer, giving us some very almost transcendent and universal truths about principally what sex is at its core and ways that we can express ourselves um, sexually to each other. Um, because like like today, for example, you know, when when the when the representation of sex out there might be a scenario like a black guy, uh, a white guy and an Asian guy all penetrate this one girl at the same time, which would be like something that would be like common in pornography. And that's their idea of like, you know, racial unification, you know, um, th scenarios like that or, or scenarios where where the idea is for the girl to be gagged to the point of vomiting. I mean, it, it's just, it's gotten so off the rails that it's, you know, uh, no matter how non-judgmental and accepting and tolerating of a person you want to be, I mean, where does that, you know, where does that ethic of tolerance take us when when we have we have no uh, internal compass or moral compass or fortitude left to to question even these um, what I would consider you know to be yeah. extremely destructive notions of sexuality. So I think that that when we consider pornography and the spread of the commercial sex industry, it really forces us, you know, obviously to to question who we are as people and as a society, but, but to question this, this beautiful act of intimacy between two people that we call sex and what is it at its core and principally, and how can we redeem that yeah. from this pornographic culture? Well, let, let maybe listening to your comments, I, I was thinking of the difference between a public conversation about sex and public representations. So I feel there's nothing wrong with a public conversation about sex in ways that are age appropriate. Uh, and you're pointing out that in various parts of the world and various times in US history, 
people have been reticent about a public conversation. And I think that is repressive. I think it is prudish in some ways to be afraid to talk about sex. So the conversation should go forward. But that doesn't mean that all forms of public representation about sex are productive and, and helpful. So we can make a distinction between real art that explores sexuality. And I think we should recognize that one of the functions of art historically in human societies has been to deal with concepts that are very difficult sometimes to pin down purely through rational thought. Uh, I always say that's why there's a lot of art about sex and a lot of art about God, because God is also a concept that we struggle to understand and, and we often reach the limits of our rational capacities. And so religious art is very important because it, it takes us into new places that are often more emotional than purely rational. Well, sex is like that too. It's, it's something that we know to be powerful in our lives, but we don't have the capacity to understand it in purely rational terms. So people make art. So I have nothing against public representations about sex that are artistic in the sense that they're really trying to explore. But as you're pointing out, pornography doesn't really explore anything. In fact, it cuts off exploration because it narrows sexual behavior into these very rigid categories in the case we're talking about male dominance, female subordination, or as you're pointing out, you know, very crude racialized notions of sex. And so it's quite possible that graphic, sexually explicit material, what we call pornography, simply isn't helpful at trying to work through the mystery of sex. And I'm using that term in kind of a general way, the, the mysterious power that sex has in our lives, which it clearly does. Uh, but it's not readily evident to me that to help us explore that mystery, we're benefited by graphic, sexually explicit images. In other words, there might be something about sexuality that is in fact private, that aspects of it are best kept into spheres of intimacy. Now, I'm not sure I'm right about all this, but I'm pretty sure these are important questions. And in a pornographic culture, they're all dismissed as, as you pointed out, as mere prudish repression. But it's not prudish and it's not repressive to wanna to talk publicly about the role of sexuality, but be skeptical about the kind of graphic representations we see in porn. Absolutely. That's a great way to say it. Lila, did you have a question? Yeah, I, I have a question. You know, it sounds like we're t talking about where do we go from here and what do we do about this? And it sounds like one of the things that we, we do is we start to, to talk about this and have this conversation, um, you know, starting, Robert, as you mentioned in Gail's curriculum, very young. Um, and so that's one way that we can start to address it and changing hearts and minds about this and creating an empathetic way of looking at this. Um my mind now um, goes to a, another question that I have for you. Uh, what, you know, what do we do about this on the scale of, I guess, our acceptance of it in the way that we've dealt with it in a legislative sense? Like the fact that in the United States, pornography is framed as speech and that trying to to create limits on this content or um, 
you know, a lot of these conversations are framed as, you know, you're, you are, you're trying to limit our, our freedom of speech and, and it's put in that kind of context, like the pro, you know, the pro, pro uh, pornography uh, organizations even call themselves the free speech coalition and, and all of this, like, how do you address that? And where, where do you feel like we need to go on, on a level of, um, creating our rules and our legislation around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable with relation to pornography. I'm, I'm so curious about yeah. your perspective on this. Yeah, and it is complicated because uh, pornography is a form of speech. Uh, film and video is speech in terms of the First Amendment and, and our ideas about freedom of expression more generally. But that, as you're pointing out, that can't end the, end the conversation. There are lots of forms of speech that we outlaw or speech that we allow people to recover damages. Uh, libel law is a way that people can, can be compensated for false speech about them that hurts their reputation. Uh, criminal threats are outlawed. Uh, insider trading in Wall Street is against the law. There's all sorts of speech that is prescribed in, in this culture. And the question are, what are the rules under which we make sure that we try to reduce or eliminate the harm that can come from speech that's dangerous, yet still create a system that really does allow the maximal space for freedom of expression? And like most things in human society, that's hard. Uh, I teach this material in my classes, and the first thing I do is, is insist that people recognize the difficulty in this. Well, we have an answer to this in contemporary law. It's called obscenity law, and it makes certain kinds of sexually explicit material illegal to produce and distribute. But, you know, obviously, if you look on the Internet, there are, at this point, millions of films and images that under obscenity law could be prosecuted but aren't. So we have a law that is on the books but rarely enforced. So from there, some people might say, well, let's just enforce the existing obscenity law. The feminist movement has always been skeptical about that. Number one, because it's never been a very effective way to control the way that women and girls are harmed through pornography. Uh, the feminist movement has tried other responses. There's a, a long tradition of trying to use civil rights law to create an avenue for primarily women but anyone who's injured in the production or use of pornography to pursue a civil rights case on it. Uh, that's a complicated argument. Uh, it started in the 1970s. People still debate it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I have my own preferences on how we might deal with this legally. But I do think there's another point to make, which is not all problems can be solved through the law. Uh, you know, people often point out that the kind of the genie's out of the bottle on pornography. We live in a pornography-saturated culture, and I'm not sure there is a, a very good legal answer to this question. We do need to think about public policy responses. Uh, I do think there are things that can be done both through criminal law and civil law. But I also think we need to recognize that as long as we live in this patriarchal, male-dominated culture in which there's money to be made by selling women's bodies for sex, it's hard to imagine 
you know, ever really getting out of the pornographic trap we're in. And so I, I support attempts to, you know, create innovative ways to use the law, but I'm quite frankly skeptical that the law is going to get us very far on this question. Hmm. I appreciate your perspective. It's something that I've been thinking about (laughs) quite often and trying to figure out in my own mind, like, where do we go from here? Um, in that sense, but very helpful. I've been reading Catherine McKinnon's book, Only Words, and it's blowing my mind a little (laughs) bit (laughs) um, as she describes just the various ways in which we can view pornography, even as a form of discrimination. And and she goes into, you know, defining that in the legal sense and and all of that. So anyway, yeah, yeah, I I appreciate that. And thank you for for explaining that. Yeah. Um, Now, Robert, Uh, I know... Oh, oh, go ahead. Were you gonna were you gonna respond to something there? Well, I was gonna uh, have another reading suggestion and and another one that's available online for free. You mentioned Catherine McKinnon, who's a feminist attorney and law professor, and she worked closely with Andrea Dworkin uh, back in the 1980s to devise this alternative legal approach that we call the civil rights approach. And for people who want to go back and read how they articulated that in the 1980s, there's uh, a, a, sh- a small book called Pornography and Civil Rights, A New Day for Women's Equality. And if you search for that, you'll find a PDF of it online for free. And that explains the feminist civil rights ordinance, uh, the legal philosophy behind it, and how they argued it could be implemented. Uh, I think that's a, a very productive place we could start to think about new law. Uh, it may not be the solution anymore, but it's certainly a, a place where we'll we'll get good ideas. So I would encourage people to look that up online as well. Could you say the name of that one more time, just in case people missed right. it? Right. The, the book was published in the 1980s. It's called Pornography and Civil Rights, A New Day for Women's Equality. It was co-written by Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. Mm-hmm. And you can find it online for free. And uh, I remember reading it back in the 1980s. Uh, a powerful piece of work that I think is worth people's time. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Awesome. Now, when you talk about feminism, radical feminism, I think there are a lot of listeners out there that will identify with the critique that you share and the values embodied in that and would... Um, uh, I think feel a uh, kinship with your perspective and um, and yet I think still maybe have some misunderstanding of, of what uh, feminism is. For example, I think that especially I've noticed for religious people, they almost view fem- feminism as a religion and therefore see it as a threat to their personal faith. Um, and so like as somebody who identifies as, as a follower of Jesus, I've, um, noticed that, uh, you know, in many conversations with other Christians, they will just out of hand reject feminism on the basis that, you know, it's, it's almost like some other religion. And yet I know that for you, you, you also identify as a Christian. I'm wondering where do you see the intersection between faith 
and feminism. And regardless of, you know, whether a person's a, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Christian, whatever, um, can you help us understand feminism in a way where people of faith may see an intersection there for them to an, adopt this same critique of the porn culture that we live in without having to throw away yeah. their, or abandon their religion? Yeah, and I think, you know, when we talk about a faith tradition, Christianity, Judaism, whatever, the first thing is to recognize there are multiple Christianities, multiple forms of Judaism, uh, different schools of thought, uh, that these traditions have never been unitary, that people have debated what it means to be Christian as long as there has been a group called Christian. So not surprisingly, people often hold on very tightly to their conception of what it means to be a person of faith in a particular tradition. But we should recognize that that shouldn't be the end of the story. That's just the beginning. And that for me, part of the, the joy of theology, I guess, is not simply articulating what I believe, but trying to understand how other people interpret the same tradition. Uh, so you can look at the Christian Bible, both the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, and you can find all sorts of uh, bits of evidence for patriarchy, that God intended the world to be patriarchal. You can also find all sorts of evidence for a radical rejection of the domination subordination dynamic in patriarchy. It's not hard to interpret Jesus as a kind of proto-feminist. Mm. Uh, you know, people are going to interpret complex traditions and, com and complex scripture in all sorts of ways, and that's fine. But I think that we have to recognize that any particular scripture is written in a particular cultural time and place, and that it's complicated. So, you know, let's not forget that the, the dominant, you know, monotheistic religions, let's talk about Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, they came out of patriarchal cultures. And it's not surprising that the scripture and certain practices reflect patriarchal traditions. That's, you know, not hard to understand. But we can also see in those same scriptures the, the inspiration for challenges. Uh, certainly, you know, Jesus challenged a lot of the domination subordination dynamic of his time. He challenged the wealthy. He challenged the empire. He challenged some of the gender norms of his time by associating with women in ways that were not always seen as clean or pure. He challenged the norms of the culture by associating with tax collectors and all sorts of... So to me, religious traditions are rich and complex. And the joy is in exploring that with people. Now, I also understand that people with a particular interpretation might see certain kinds of feminism as a direct assault. And that's important to recognize, as we said at the beginning, that there are different interpretations of feminism as well. There are people who identify as feminist and have doctrines I find wholly inconsistent with my own conception of feminism. In fact, I, they have political positions I think are quite dangerous. So, you know, it's not so much about, for me, Christianity versus feminism. It's about what's our conception of Christianity? What's our conception of feminism? Where do they dovetail? What can we learn from each other? And the older I, maybe I'm, you know, just getting to be an old man who sees the world in more complex ways. Uh, but I'm, you know, reluctant to, to say that any particular tradition has the final word on anything. And 
one of the joys of getting older is the experience of learning more about different perspectives and finding where they where they dovetail. And so I personally don't see any contradiction between claiming a feminist identity and claiming a Christian identity. Uh, I think they're highly compatible. But I also understand there are, you know, points in each tradition that make that uneasy. So mm-hmm. I would just hope we can keep talking about it. That's good. I wonder if there's any I specific think... places that you could kind of talk a little yeah. bit more about, just in a few minutes on those places where you do feel like they're compatible. And if, yeah. if you, because I, I know that a, quite a large portion of our listeners are Christian and, um, you know, we do talk about feminism quite a bit. And so it'd be really helpful if that's something that you could explain a little bit more about the way that you feel that these two things are compatible. Well, compatible and, and sometimes with tension. So let's take an example of the probably the most well-organized and prominent anti-pornography group in the country today, which is the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Uh, they, they hold an annual summit called the Coalition to End Sexual Exploitation Summit. This year it will be in Washington, D.C. in early April. Well, I was at last year's summit in, in Texas, and uh, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation is largely a... a a faith organization. The leadership is out of religious traditions, mostly Christian, uh, both Protestant and Catholic and Mormon. Uh, But people in that organization work with feminist groups. Uh, My friend Gail Dines and her group Culture Reframed is in active collaboration with people at the National Center. So that's a place where you can see that we come together because from both traditions we recognize that the sexual exploitation industries, pornography and prostitution primarily, are inconsistent with decent human societies, that we have to end these practices. And we may be motivated with different ideological, theological, philosophical perspectives, but we can come together. And it's not always easy. I mean, sometimes it's tense and, and uncomfortable. But, you know, it's kind of, a, I think, a truism of life that if you're comfortable all the time, you're probably not doing anything very important. And so I welcome that kind of interaction. Uh, I find that I learn from it. Uh, and I think others learn from it as well. So there are places where this is happening. Uh, and I think the, the, I don't know, the urgency of the pornographic culture, the, the, the fact that we're not making much headway to stem the tide of the pornographic culture uh, makes it easier for people to not put aside differences or ignore differences, but to recognize that we have to work through those differences if we care about, you know, the fate of the culture and especially our children. I, I don't always like making this a, a, you know, a plea to help the children, but the fact is we are leaving for our children an incredibly toxic culture and I think everybody should be concerned about that. Yeah, I absolutely uh, share your your concern on that level. And when I first started into this whole issue, um, I did not have any kids, and now I have three kids. And so it's that, that that piece is becoming more and more meaningful to me. But 
just thinking in terms of the sexual ethic of our day or lack thereof, the, I'll just say the sexuality of our day, I view us as a culture today related to this issue as a city without walls. It's like we've been so inundated because of the media-based culture, because of the internet, because of the prominence of pornography and the the progressive mainstreaming of that in all kinds of different ways. Um, part of what I feel like in the is this city of out walls that is a you know city that's become flooded, so to speak, um, is this desperate question uh, to that brings us back to this issue of you know what is the what is the sexual ethic that will define our lives and um, and I think that I you know that's really why I appreciate having this conversation with you Bob because on one hand you're providing a very clear uh, common sense critique of this pornographic culture, and on the other hand, empowering us to embrace uh, an ethic of sexuality that I believe can empower us to rebuild those walls, so to speak. And really, you know, for myself and for our listeners out there, that would be my hope, is that as we consider the, the grievous injustice of the spread of the commercial sex industry, as we consider the... Um, the grievous existence of sexism and patriarchy and male domination and and its and its consequences for women and even for men, like you pointed out, the self-interest. I think that um, it's it's really important then to to be for us to begin to ask this question of you know how shall we then live and and what are the what are the tools what are the ideas what are the what's what are the ethics that we can gravitate towards that we can fortify ourselves with to be able to navigate um, this culture to be able to resist the expressions of sexuality and representations of sexuality that would strip us of our humanity that would cheapen our relationships and how can we become more whole human beings and so um your your contribution to this conversation has been huge bob i think through i'm sure your presence um, on the campus that you teach at in texas um, it's through your books, through the interviews that we've had with you and the Liberated where you were prominently featured and in this podcast. And so I couldn't be more grateful for you sharing this time with us. And I don't know if you have any final thoughts, but I just really want to just um, thank you so much for being a, a true role model and for offering so much of yourself in, in a very transparent and vulnerable way that um, can help strengthen us to move forward in this. Well, that's very kind of you. And of course, you know, you're doing an incredible amount of work there, you and Lila and the whole team. Uh, I think my own, my last point would, you know, simply be to, to mark the fact that at this point, after 30 years of, you know, thinking and researching and writing about this, you know, I have some very clear ideas. But, you know, thinking back to when I first started, uh, remembering the sense of confusion and the fear that, I had to face in myself, you know, as someone socialized to be a traditional man in a traditional society, uh, 
it was very frightening. So I would just remind people who are, you know, early in the process that if they're feeling scared, if they're feeling nervous, if they're feeling weird, well, that's to be expected because we're talking about challenging some of the most deeply embedded norms of the culture. And it's not easy. And when people ask me, well, how can I do this? The only bit of advice I ever have is to make sure you're not doing it alone. If you try and buck a culture by yourself, mm. you almost certainly will fail. The only way this works is if we come together and overcome our fear of talking to each other. As I said, I was very lucky that when I started this, I met a man who was very uh, important in helping me overcome my own fear and provide a kind of model for what it meant to engage in this conversation. So uh, churches are a natural place to talk about this. Uh, education, we should be finding ways to talk about it in schools and universities. Media, obviously, the primary focus of your work is important. Uh, just to, to make sure that people don't feel like they need to have all the answers to start the conversation. And sometimes I think the best way to start the conversation is simply to say, I'm scared. I'm scared of what this means in our lives. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, it feels, you know, in some ways it does feel daunting and, and in other ways it feels um, inspiring. Uh, I think, you know, for um, that, it feels inspiring from the standpoint that I, when I think about you and I think about the contribution that you've made, one of the main things that I'm struck with is the level, the, the level of consciousness that you are raising. And that really inspires me. And I think, you know, to me, that looks to me that that represents what an evolved society would look like. And so I think for for many other others of us out there to begin to join this conversation and begin to wrestle and to grapple with these ideas is all part of what will help us to continue to evolve as a civilization to raise our level of consciousness and to be freed from these, you know, lower levels of consciousness that keep us enslaved in very narrow um, and enslaving uh, ideas about about gender and sexuality. But thinking of those of you out there who are listening to this podcast, and we know we have, you know, people from all spectrums of um, faith and walks of life and non-faith and everybody that's, that's joining in with this. I, I think, you know, I just, I feel this, um, sensitivity in my heart, um, t towards everyone out there who's, who's joining this conversation, because I think some of us are, are questioning our masculinity and that, like you said, Robert, th that's a scary thing. It's like, w whoa, like, who, who have I become as a man? What is this notion of masculinity that, that I've embraced? There's a, it requires a lot of self-reflection. That's a scary thing. And thinking about our sexuality, whoa, well, I, you know, I think a lot of people have just, like with regards to pornography and some of these shows are out there, have just thought, you know, why not? Like, why not look at it? And, you know, I, I, maybe you're on the, maybe you're going to these porn sites and you thought, well, I'm going for one thing. And then, you know, a hundred clicks later, it turned into something else, but why not? And why not watch the show? And everybody else is doing it, you know? And I, and so if you're coming to that place now where you're beginning to question, well, 
maybe there is a, a reason to the why not. Like, maybe there is a really good reason to rethink masculinity. Maybe there really is a really good reason to rethink porn or my sexuality. That's a scary place to be. And I just, you know, want to encourage all of our listeners out there to to go on this journey. And, um, and our own personal evolution is not going to happen overnight. But, you know, when, when we get to sit here with somebody like Bob, who's been on this journey for 30 years, I think he provides us with a, a hope and an inspiration that, you know, if we stay on this journey, that we too can can develop uh, more um, a higher level of, of thinking and a higher level of consciousness about these issues where we can truly become um, the people the, that we were created to be and to contribute something towards our society through our masculinity, through our sexuality, contribute something to relationships that's positive and, and, um, and really to make a, a positive impact and imprint on this world. It's not going to happen by simply allowing ourselves to be swept away in the delusion of the culture. And so this is just a really great conversation for us to have. And uh, we're thankful for all of you that have been uh, joining in with this podcast. And again, Bob, we thank you so much. Um, and we look forward to the next time that we'll be able to talk with you again. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to our podcast. To learn more about how you can be involved, go to exoduscry.com and follow us on social media. If you have questions or comments, email us at feedback at exoduscry.com. We'd love to hear from you.